Our text this morning is Ruth chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read the whole chapter here, so here's the word of God for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter uh, to me. Um, it is exceedingly bitter to me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem 
at the beginning of barley harvest. Would you pray with me? Father, here again, here again, we study, we seek to know you, to hear from you, to understand your word better. God, your word is rich and beautiful, even in a story that has darkness like this one does. Please, God, we pray, help us to sense what will please you, to learn from this word, to grow in depth and knowledge and devotion to you. Give us hope in a dark season. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When does light look most bright? You see light best when it's set against the darkness. You know that. The book of Ruth is like a candle in a dark room or a pearl set against black velvet. It's a short book in the Old Testament, but in it we see hope rise from the ashes of sadness. We see faithful people contrasted against a faithless nation. We see people clinging to hope. We see other people descending into bitterness. And in the book of Ruth, we see God move. He moves quietly. He moves in the background. But God moves. He moves displaying his great love, his mysterious ways, and his glorious provision. God's provision in this book is for one family particularly, one nation especially, and the whole world eventually. Today, many people are struggling with fear with frustration, with the need for provision, or a need even for protection. And the book of Ruth speaks to our needs, and it speaks to our fears, and it speaks to them with hope. And the book of Ruth is going to point us to Jesus, God's ultimate provision for our soul's only hope. When you read a book like Ruth, a narrative historical book in the Old Testament, we need to remember that all of the Bible is designed to show us God and God's ultimate glorious plan to save sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. We must never miss that. And it'll really come out in this book at the end. But also when you read history, you're going to see some people living in ways that you want to follow and you'll see other people living in ways that you know you should avoid. And we can and we will learn from those too as we study. If God allows us, church, our plan is to spend the next four weeks examining this beautiful book. This doesn't mean we're never going back to Ephesians. We'll get back there, but I'm still hoping by the grace of God that we can study Ephesians when we're face to face again. But as you join me here in chapter one of the book of Ruth, we're going to find six things to write down, six points as we watch this story begin to unfold. And for the most part, the, 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 the points we're going to see this morning are going to be points of application that we glean as we watch the behavior of different people, the different characters in this true story. Some things to follow, some things not to follow. But in it all, we're going to watch for glimpses of the hand of God at work, which come to fruition, and they especially will come to fruition at the end of chapter four of this book. So let's get started, okay? Point number one, if you're a note taker, turn to God in a time of hardship. Turn to God in time of hardship. Let's start at verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. I don't know if you ever read the Charles Dickens classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. 
but it opens with the line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And to the reader of scripture, to the Old Testament Israelite, the period when the judges reigned in Israel really could have been described very similarly. During the days of the judges, the people of Israel saw great miracles from God. And during the time of the judges, the people of Israel, uh, they, they saw that they repeatedly were dishonoring God. And the time got progressively darker and darker as the years rolled past. There are at least seven times where you see a cycle of the people rebelling against God and God allowing the land to be conquered and then the people crying out and God bringing the judge, a military leader, into the land to give the people some relief, some rescue. But then they do it again. They keep battling and ignoring the commands of God. And the book ends with the condemnation that rather than following God, rather than obeying God's word in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's against that ugly, disturbing, downward spiraling backdrop that you find the little book of Ruth. In the darkest of times, we have a book that shines out with hope. But it opens It opens with the darkness of its era. As this book opens, Israel appears to be suffering a famine as a curse, as a call to repentance. Wasn't uncommon at all for this time in their history. But this book's not going to focus us on the nation as a whole yet. It's going to focus us on one particular family and the drama that unfolds in it. So let's continue in verse 1. It says, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech decides that he and his family are going to get up and leave Israel to escape the famine. So he packs up his wife and the two sons, and the family travels to Moab, where they remain. And you might think to yourself, that sounds like a fairly sensible idea. But if you have a biblical worldview, you know that in this instance, at this time in history, the man was turning away from God and leading his family away from the Lord. The right reaction to this famine is not flight. The right reaction to this famine is repentance from sin and turning toward the Lord. The right reaction is to cry out to God for grace, not to seek to escape the reach of God. So make no mistake, Elimelech sinned against God when he led his family out of the promised land. And going to Moab was a particularly bad choice. Ian Duguid, a commentator on this book, writes this, quote, For Israel, Moab was known for several things, none of them good. The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter, Genesis 19, 30-38. Their king, Balak, had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt, Numbers 22-24. Their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to the worship of false gods, Numbers 25. And they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon, Judges chapter 3. Does this sound like the place to go in order to raise a godly family? 
end quote? We know better than. You know, even the name Moab is a nasty little play on words in Hebrew. Dugid pointed out to us that the original Moab was a son born to Lot through an incestuous encounter with his daughter in a cave in Genesis 19. And the word Moab, the name Moab literally means of the father. You might know that Ab in Hebrew and in some of those language refers to a dad or a father. Jesus refers to his own father in the garden as Abba, father. That's where the Ab comes from, his father. So when an Israelite would say Moab, or when they would refer to anyone as a Moabite, it was very likely said with a sneer. And for Elimelech to run with his family to the land of Moab is for him to turn his back on the Lord. Now, while we're talking about names and their meanings, there are several other ironies right here. Bethlehem, the place from which the family flees a famine, literally means the house of bread. That's not a great name for a town with no food. But I will tell you, in the future, Bethlehem will be the birthplace of Jesus, the bread of life himself. So the name fits the town pretty well. Elimelech literally means God is my king. But the choice that Elimelech makes here is one that says that he is not going to follow God as king. Naomi means delight, pleasant. We'll watch to see if she lives up to that name. And the names of the two sons, Malon and Killian, they mean sickly and pining. They point to sickness and mortality. So my guess is those aren't the original names as much as they might be nicknames. They are quite accurate of what they become. Now, look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So tragedy continues to follow this family. While living in Moab, Elimelech dies. Then the two sons marry Moabite women in violation of God's law, by the way. These Moabite women, there's no hint that they were turning away from the evil false gods of Moab when they married them. So we can see that there is more and more rebellion in evidence in this family. Then 10 years after the sons were married, both sons died and there were no children. By verse 5, Naomi has lost her husband, she's lost her sons, she's left her home, and in a very real sense, she has turned her back on the one true God. And Naomi has two foreign daughters-in-law and no means of support. It is hard to see any hope for this woman at all. So far, this book reads like the book of Judges. It's dark, it's sad. The question we have to be wondering is, is this darkness going to last? Is the downward spiral going to continue? But before we find out, let's learn from what we've seen. In hard times, turn to the Lord. Let hardship and pain drive you toward and not away from your heavenly Father. We live in a broken world. Pain, sorrow, struggle, sickness, abuse, famine, disease, death, 
They're all around us. And when we experience pain, there are two clear options for us. One of them is that we can let the pain harden us. We can choose to be angry at God for letting us suffer. That's the common response. That's the normal human response to pain. But it's deadly. Remember, God is holy. God's ways are perfect. God's wisdom is beyond our comprehension. We can't begin to think that we know how things are supposed to go in the universe. We're sinful. We have earned from the Lord death. We've earned from the Lord hell. And for God to give us anything less than eternal judgment is unimaginable mercy. No, what we should do when we experience pain, when we face loss in one form or another, is let that sorrow remind us of eternity. We live lives that are so very short. Our 80 years or so in this world fly by. And then we face the Lord. We stand in God's presence. Every human being will stand in God's presence. Pain in the here and now reminds us that our lives are short. Disappointment today reminds us that we do not want to face sorrow forever. So we should let hardship in the present remind us, yes, we deserve wrath, but God has offered us mercy. We should remember that while this life can hurt today, we're going to exist forever. And we should let those truths drive us toward God in faith and repentance. Christians, let this dark time, even in our nation, make you cling to and treasure the Lord more than you treasure your possessions, more than you treasure your job, more than you treasure your health, more than you treasure your freedom. And if you're not yet a believer, run to Jesus, repent of sin, and entrust your soul's eternity to Jesus Christ. Because only through Jesus and his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection, can you be forgiven and find eternal life. Turn to God in a time of hardship. Second point now, for you who are keeping track. Find hope in God's provision. Find hope in God's provision. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then, speaking of Naomi, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So here we begin to see our first glimpse of hope. Naomi decides to return to Israel. Now, why does she do that? Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Since we don't know exactly when during the period of the judges this is, we don't know exactly how the situation changed here. But the word is out. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, is giving his people food once again. And in this account, since we seldom see Naomi do anything right, right here, we better take notice. Because even if it's by accident, Naomi does a right thing. 
Naomi heard that God had provided in Israel and Naomi with no other options rose to return to Israel. She was full of sorrow. She was quite broken. But when she heard that there was provision from God, she began the journey home. And when you hear that God has provided, you should find hope, especially find eternal hope because God has provided life forever in Christ. Run to the Lord to find that life. Then our third point, do not seek life apart from God. Do not seek life apart from God. Start with verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. It seems to be sometime during the journey toward Bethlehem. They're walking out of Moab. Naomi takes a look and thinks for a second, and she realizes that there's not a single thing she can do to help her daughters-in-law. So Naomi attempts, attempts to release Orpah and Ruth from any of the obligations they might feel toward her. She says, go home. She even prays that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, would bless them, show them kindness. They've shown her kindness. Oh, God bless these girls. But then verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Originally, both daughters-in-law intend to go with Naomi. But Naomi responds to them, and she's very logical. This is very thoughtful. She does not have any sons for them to marry. She's too old to have any more children. She's at least in her middle 50s, maybe getting close on to 60. She doesn't have any way to support these daughters herself. She believes God is punishing her. She doesn't think they should have to suffer with her. So the conclusion, the logical conclusion Naomi draws is that these women should go home and find new husbands. They're probably 25, give or take. They, they can find new husbands. And we can start to see here some hints of the bitterness that Naomi feels in how she tries to persuade the younger women to turn home. She's, she's, there's, a, there's a little harshness in her voice, though, that you may not see right away. In verse 11, where we see her ask, have I yet sons in my womb? The phrase in Hebrew is a little more raw than that, a little uglier than that. Literally, what Naomi asks is, are there any sons in my guts? Then in verse 13, Naomi says that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against her, and she's bitter about it. And Orpah, when she hears Naomi's logic, Orpah weeps. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. And she turns around and she walks home to Moab. 
Now listen, what Orpah does makes absolutely logical sense from a this world perspective. But, and this is really important for us to see, that sensible choice is a choice that walked her out of the story and away from the blessing and the salvation of Almighty God. I don't have anything negative to say about Orpah, but I do have something to say to us. Do not seek life apart from God. There is no hope in any turn that you would take in your life if the turn takes you away from God. If the turn you take takes you away from the blessings of the God of the Bible, there is no hope to be found in it, no matter how logical or emotionally satisfying it feels to you. Fourth, Love others sacrificially. Point four is love others sacrificially. 15 to 17. Naomi again speaking. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. At the end of verse 14, we saw that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Here, Naomi tries again to convince Ruth, go home, go back to Moab. And by the way, look at Naomi's words and you see that there's something wrong with Naomi's worldview. She says, it's okay, go back to your gods. What a horrible, horrible thing to say. But Ruth is not having it. Instead, Ruth is committed to Naomi. How committed? She will follow Naomi to a foreign land. She will adopt foreign customs. She will adopt Naomi's religion. She will die in the land of Israel. She'll be buried in the land of Israel. And she calls on the God of Israel to curse her if she should fail to keep her word to stick to Naomi. This is a total life commitment being made by Ruth. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to caution you here in your biblical interpretation. Ruth says, you see the quote there, your God shall be my God. And many people who study this passage interpret those words as a genuine conversion, a true salvation experience. And it is possible, it is possible that Ruth is expressing genuine faith in the God of Israel, genuine repentance of following the gods of Moab, and a truly changed life and saved soul. But it really is just as possible here that what Ruth is saying at this point, and hear me, I'm saying at this point, not for the rest of the book, but at this point, that what Ruth is saying is I am utterly, completely committed to doing Naomi good. And if you ask me personally, I think the safest way to interpret this text without over-interpreting it 
is to see this as a completely true and radical commitment of Ruth to care for her mother-in-law. Later, we'll see her get under the protection of the God of Israel, but I don't know that it's happening here. This is the first step. It's not absolutely clear what the name Ruth means. But one guess among most scholars, many scholars who put it down, is that Ruth means friend. And for sure, a true loving friend, a true daughter, is exactly what Ruth is being right here. Ruth could have left Naomi. And if she had, nobody would have thought ill of her. But Ruth knew that Naomi had no means of support. Ruth knew that Naomi needed help. And Ruth committed herself to give Naomi that help, even if doing that was to cost Ruth everything. What you see in Ruth is genuine biblical love. You see, love is a commitment. Love is a commitment to do somebody else good, even if doing them good costs you. Yes, there's affection. Yes, there's emotion. But love is about doing somebody else good first and foremost. And Ruth shows true love here. And all of us who follow the Lord Jesus are called to that kind of love. We're called to sacrificial love in every aspect of our lives. You, Christian, are to honor the Lord with everything you've got, even if honoring God costs you your life. That's loving God. You, Christian, are called to care for your church and to care for your family, even if it hurts you, even if it costs you, you show the love of God to the church and to your family. You're called to love your neighbor as yourself, to love others sacrificially. Then our fifth point here, let's keep going. Guard against bitterness. Point number five, guard against bitterness. Look at 18 and following. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? When verse 18 says, Naomi said no more, it might mean that Naomi stopped trying to persuade Ruth to go back home. But it might even mean that Naomi just stopped talking at all. Just plodded along in a bitter silence. When the women arrive in Bethlehem, the townswomen are surprised. Naomi had been gone for more than 10 years. And when she left, she left with a husband and she had two sons. Here she is back with a Moabite woman. Naomi tells the women of Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi any longer. Remember the word Naomi means delight. She wants her name to reflect herself now. So she chooses the name Mara. It's a name that means bitterness. She feels poisonous. She feels bitter. She feels that God has treated her bitterly. 
Naomi said, I left Bethlehem full and returned empty. It's kind of funny you think about that. She left Bethlehem because there was a famine. Doesn't sound very full to me. But she did leave Bethlehem with loved ones who are not with her anymore. And now she has become, even in her own mind, old, broken, bitter. Christians, bitterness is so easy. And it's so dangerous. We must always guard our hearts against bitterness. We must remember God is good. Do you know that? No matter what, do you know God is good? Regardless of what we experience, we must remember God has been better to us than we could ever possibly deserve. Old friend of mine used to say to me, any day that I wake up not in hell is a good day. It's better than I deserve. The only way to beat bitterness, Christians, is to actively guard your heart. Believe the goodness of God. Remember the judgment that he hasn't given you. And set your eyes on eternity, knowing that when this life is done, we who are in Christ have eternity to live with the Lord in perfect peace and in total joy forever. So what should we say then? Should we say that everything Naomi thinks here is wrong? No. I don't think we should think that either. It's skewed, but she's not totally wrong. John Piper says this, What do you make of Naomi's theology? I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God which dominate evangelical magazines and books today. Naomi is unshaken and sure about three things. God exists. God is sovereign. God has afflicted her. The problem with Naomi is that she has forgotten the story of Joseph, who also went into a foreign country. He was sold as a slave. He was framed by an adulteress and put in prison. He had every reason to say with Naomi, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. But he kept his faith. And God turned it all to his personal good and for Israel's national good. The key lesson in Genesis 50, 20 is this. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, Joseph says to his brothers, but God meant it for good. Naomi is right to believe in a sovereign almighty God who governs the affairs of nations and families and gives each day its part of pain and pleasure. But she needs to open her eyes to the signs of his merciful purposes. Christians, may we guard against bitterness by remembering the goodness and perfect plan of our God. Sixth point, last point, find hope in the darkness. Find hope in the darkness. And you'll see that in verse 22. The Bible says, oh dear, there's my spot there. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem 
at the beginning of barley harvest. This summarizes the the happenings of chapter 1. You might say there's not much to it. But this verse leaves us expecting that there's something more to come. It's like if you're watching a TV show and it really looks bad. It looks like everything's going the bad direction. But then you see the line, to be continued, come across the screen. Ruth and Naomi are in Bethlehem. Things are dark and ugly and sad, but there have been glimmers of hope through this story. Naomi heard that there was food again in Israel. God was at work. Naomi and Ruth traveled to the land and they arrived safely. That, by the way, could be a miracle in and of itself. A 60-year-old woman and a 25-ish-year-old woman walking by themselves from Moab to Jerusalem and they make it safely, that might be a miracle from God. Naomi's not alone. Even if her sorrow has made her so bitter and made her even wish she could be alone, she's not by herself. Ruth has not abandoned her. And here in verse 22, we see that it is the time of the barley harvest. Crops are growing in Israel again. And to let you in on just a little secret, just just you and me, just in case you're listening, God has a special plan for this barley harvest. There is hope on the horizon. There is hope shining in the darkness. Christians, maybe some of you are experiencing dark times. I'm so sorry that you are. But know this. There is hope. It may feel dark. It may be dark, but there will be a dawn. Remember this. There was a day in history when God's only son suffered the deepest darkness anyone's ever thought of. He was tortured and humiliated by men. He bled and was hung on a cross. God poured on him all of his wrath for the sins of the world. And the Son of God died. He was taken off of the cross and his dead body was sealed up in a tomb. That was dark. But the story didn't end there. Jesus lives. He rose from the grave. He walked out of the tomb and he proved to everyone in the world that he is the conqueror of death and the grave. And if Jesus can conquer death, he can most certainly overcome your own personal dark night of the soul. Maybe your circumstances are dark, but know these things. God is. God is good. God is sovereign. And God offers you hope in the times of darkness. If you don't know God, run to Jesus and find salvation. Cry out to Jesus, believing in him and asking him, please, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I'm a sinner and I know you died and rose from the grave. Run to Jesus for salvation. And if you do know Jesus, find hope in his good and his faithful promises. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we bow And we thank you because you are good and your steadfast love endures through all generations. Help us now, Lord, I pray, that we would find hope in the promises that you've given us. Help us find hope 
in the darkness. Help us find hope that will keep us going no matter how hard life feels. Help us, God, to trust in Jesus, to set our eyes on eternity, to know you provide, and to know you are good. God, be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.